individuals that are attracted to IT. These are very analytical individuals that really kind of want to get into the weeds of an issue or a problem and look for that solution. Sometimes you can be so focused on trying to solve that problem that you forget about the other people around you. And even to an extent that when you try to explain it, because it's so second nature to a technologist, there's also kind of this default that the individual I'm talking to is going to understand what I'm saying. And so they just jump right into whatever that issue is from a technology perspective. And then it's just going right over the head of the audience. But the other challenge is the recipient of that information, they don't want to look like they don't understand what someone is saying. So they'll just kind of go along with the conversation. They're completely confused about what this person is saying, but they don't want to look like, I don't know what you're talking about. In a corporate world, where all employees have great leaders with no egos that create fun cultures where people can do their best work. The employees and companies thrive while doing great things for the customers, themselves, and each other. Well, we know that rarely happens. I'm Jeff Palaccio. I have been a leader for over 40 years for every t-shirt size company from small 16 employees to extra large over 1 million. Please join me while I interview outstanding leaders that will share stories of great leadership and not so great. It will help you become a better leader while poking fun about all the crazy shit that happens in corporate America. Hi. I'm Jody Sean, and welcome to The Corporate Couch with Jeff Palaccio. Today, Jeff is interviewing Michael Smith. Michael is a 25-year veteran of the IT industry who has led several complex digital and operational transformations for various companies during his career. Most recently, he has led an end-to-end business and digital transformation for a national healthcare association. His efforts were recognized as recently as 2020 being named one of the 100 most innovative CIOs globally. His teams have been recognized as some of the most innovative in the industry, including being recognized as one of the 100 best companies to work for in IT in 2021 across the United States. During Michael's career, he has worked for some of the largest Fortune 500 companies in the world as well as a successful consulting career, affording him the opportunity to work across various industries. As an experienced, award-winning technology strategist with an extensive executive leadership background, Michael is uniquely positioned to meet organizational strategic objectives while enforcing IT execution to achieve greater growth and sustained profitability. Michael is currently the CIO for a startup biotechnology company in the greater Kansas City area, focused on revolutionizing and disrupting the sample prep microbiology industry through a patented technology process that uniquely positions the company for significant growth and expansion opportunities. You can learn more about Michael at yourp4s.com. That's your, the letter P, the number four, and the letter S.com. Let's listen as Jeff talks to Michael. Michael, welcome to the corporate couch. Uh, thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, this is a monumental moment in the corporate couch uh, podcast history. You, you're the first CIO on the podcast, so congratulations. Oh, thank you. That's quite an honor. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, so uh, I'd love to start out, especially with your IT background. You know, we've been in this pandemic now three plus years, and um, I have to ask you, what is the craziest attire you've seen on a Zoom call or lack of attire? Um, Yeah, so it's definitely, I I think sometimes uh, people forget that they may have their camera on while they're on a call and stuff. So yeah, I've seen everything from uh, some casual pajamas to some questionable lingerie. Um, And people are thinking that they uh, have their uh, camera turned off or they may uh, have it disabled, but something happens during the meeting that they accidentally enable it. And uh, uh, so yeah, it's uh, very interesting. Uh, uh, Including one time we were on a pretty large call and uh, it it was with a a global uh, audience. And apparently someone over in Europe 
had fallen asleep and they started snoring. Uh, and so a lot of the attendees of the, the call were yelling out, trying to get that person to wake up, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't wake up. And, and every, uh, every probably about three or four seconds, you'd hear this loud snore. And, uh, and it just was, it was extremely distracting everybody else, but wow, <laughs> yeah, that's, it just uh, became very casual on the, on the zoom calls or the WebEx or teams calls or whatever that platform that they were using. Wow. So this is uh, uh, two other firsts then. I've never got the falling asleep uh, reference as well as the lingerie. Would yeah. love to dig into that deeper, but we probably should go on to other things. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, growing up, where, where, where'd you grow up? So I actually was, uh, was born in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, but uh, family had moved down to uh, New Orleans, about 45 miles outside of New Orleans. So right in our backyard was the Honey Island Swamp. And so I grew up around alligators and, and uh, right in the midst of the, the Cajun territory down there. And uh, so, yeah, it was definitely a Southern charm area. Where, yeah, uh, I, know, I noticed a little bit of that New Orleans uh, Southern draw. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. And, and if I get to talking really quick, sometimes a Southern accent comes out. But, uh, but yeah, I've, I've lost most of it. Um, but yeah, we live down there and, and uh, to see alligators in your backyard would be similar to seeing deer in the backyard in the Midwest. It just wasn't that big of a deal. And if you left them alone, they'd leave you alone. And they're pretty, pretty docile creatures. Uh, so they're not as aggressive as a crocodile. And so, but if they feel threatened or cornered, they're going to attack. But otherwise you stay away from them. You keep your small animals close by. And, uh, but yeah, it would, uh, especially during the rainy season when it would flood, the swamp would would come up into our backyard and of course we had a pretty large fence that was separating the swamp from our yard uh, but yeah you just see them out there sunning themselves and laying out in the water with their snouts and their head out of the water but you could uh you'd count 10 15 20 of them just uh wow out there. yeah <laughs> yeah um I grew up in New York and if I have a couple of beers I get more of a New York accent so I don't know mm -hmm. if it's the same for you yeah. So uh, growing up, what did you want to be when you became an adult? What was your, kind of your career aspiration or, or dream? Yeah, it'd probably be more when I was in uh, high school. And, and it was interesting. I would go into uh, and, and I don't even remember the reason, but I might be with my mom or dad and we'd go into the uh, into the bank, the local bank in the town. We we'd since moved back up into the Midwest, uh, up into Missouri. And that uh, would go into the bank. And uh, uh, of course, they'd go up to the teller window and it would be like, Oh, that would be like a really neat job. And I'm probably 13, 14 years old to be a bank teller. You know, you get to meet all these people. I'd always been kind of an outgoing person. You get to meet all these people and everything. And so I decided, well, when I, when I, when I went to college, I wanted to major in banking and finance. And, uh, and so I went to, to college with that understanding and uh, got into the college and uh, what was, what I saw in the bank versus what you were learning in school was not anything <laughs> <laughs> related and uh, absolutely hated the classes, didn't do well in the classes. And so I decided, well, okay, I guess that's not going to work. What, what do I want to do now? And I'd always enjoyed theater. And uh, so I thought, well, maybe I'll major in theater. And so I started taking several classes, was in uh, production or two in college. And absolutely, I mean, I fell in love with it because if, if uh, I'm, I'm probably five, six or so, five, seven, so I'm vertically challenged. So if you wanted to be a Broadway actor or something like that and be the leading man, you've, you know, you have to generally be taller than the leading lady. So that was uh, one strike against me from that perspective on, on just being vertically challenged. But I really enjoyed it. And I woke up one morning and came to the realization that unless you know someone in the business, the, the odds of you making it big, whether that be in movie productions, television, or Broadway, uh, you really have to have contacts and know people. And you're, of course, competing against tens of thousands of out-of-work actors and actresses trying to land a, a job or uh, some type of uh, production. And so I came to the realization that probably, even though it was really fun, the likelihood you're going to make a living at it was pretty low. So someone uh, came up to me and said, well, hey, I took this uh, introduction to criminal justice class, and I think you'd really like it. And, and I'm now coming into uh, the summer of my sophomore year, so I've got to really start to figure out what am I going to major in uh, as I move into more of the upperclassmen years. And so I decided I'd take uh, some of those classes, and absolutely, there was just something that connected uh, with me and, and criminal justice. And I think it was more that analytical side 
of uh, or what you even kind of see in the IT world. And so I ended up majoring in uh, criminology with an emphasis in criminal profiling and, uh, and a minor in communications. And I was on my way to the FBI. I was going to work in behavioral sciences and be a, a criminal profilist. So I didn't do a lot of research and was young and dumb and didn't realize you can't uh, go directly into the FBI. Uh, you either have to have prior military experience or you have to have three years of civilian work experience. Because if you're going to get hired by the government, they're going to do a background check. And unless you have filed your taxes as an individual person in the government's eyes, you don't exist uh, because you're a dependent of your family. And so uh, they had said, hey, you need to go off and, you know, get some work experience, um, file your taxes, things like that, you know, so you, we can, you know, build a, a background check and a dossier on you. And so I said, okay, well, now what am I going to do? Well, I had learned in some of my criminology classes around kind of the concept of forensics. And so I thought, well, wouldn't it be neat if I could go into banking, but somehow still be associated with the criminology and stuff? So first bank I worked at, of course, I was a teller, but then I quickly took over the, the automated clearinghouse. This was where all the wire transfers and things like that. And one of the banks I worked for, they wanted me to kind of... Um, review every single morning these large financial transactions that would come into the bank and then quickly be transferred to other accounts. And it was just, you know, some red flags if someone was kind of laundering money or doing some type of uh, potential illegal activity. And, uh, and so I really enjoyed doing that. And, and one of those banks had an AS400 uh, system that was running OS2 for the operating system. So this is, you know, back in the in the early to mid nineties. And, and so uh, uh, there was this guy that would come in and drive two and a half hours. Cause they were, of course um, this was before all the remote diagnostics tools. He'd drive two and a half hours to work on the system uh, and it would take him maybe 30, 45 minutes. And then he would drive two and a half hours back to the corporate office for this bank. And he would do that probably five or six times a year. And so one day he was in the office and I'd said, look, I don't have a clue what you're doing but why don't you just give me a call? And if you have to walk me through this, even if it takes us an hour, hour and a half, it saves you, you know, five hours on the road. He loved the idea. And so we did that a couple of times, absolutely fell in love with it, had the opportunity to go back to some education on the IT side and, uh, and ended up finding myself in IT. And I think what I've truly enjoyed about this industry is going back to why I was attracted to criminology. It was that whole analytical side that you have a problem, you're trying to solve what, figure out what that problem is, and then solve that problem similar to what a criminologist would do when they're dealing with a crime scene or, or anything like that. So, so yeah, I had a kind of a long way around uh, into the IT industry, but now I've since been in IT a little over 25 years and absolutely love it. Wow. That's a great story. So you, uh, your teenage dream of becoming a teller that you, you achieved that. So that's phenomenal. You, yeah. You yeah. That was, a, that was an easy check off. Might be the first guest that has achieved their uh, dream. So there you go. That's another. Um, yeah. yeah uh, and interesting that you, so you're young and they gave you responsibility for mm -hmm. the ACH uh, clearinghouse. That's phenomenal. How old were you when that happened? <laughs> Yeah, well, I was just in my early 20s, yeah. but um, yeah, I, you, you flat, you were very flattering with saying I was in charge of that. My job was to monitor the reports and then report back to, to leadership that, hey, there's some questionable transactions here. So I don't know how much authority I had. I was more of kind of that, that guy behind the wall that's looking at the data and, and then providing some, some potential recommendations to the bank leadership that, hey, you, you may want to have somebody else further investigate that, so... Yeah, having a little bit of technology background myself, the AS400 was kind of the creme de la creme in the uh, early 90s, but it's uh, actually kind of crazy. There's there's still AS400 stuff going on today. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so how long did you work at the bank and, and how did you get that bank job actually out of college? Um, I, I think it was just a, a, and just an interview, uh, what I can remember, because I was interviewing for different uh positions because of course I needed a job and and uh, yeah I talked to some retail stores about doing sales and even though I really enjoyed working with people I just wasn't that interested in the sales side it was more of just enjoying talking to people and and again going back to that whole analytical side of 
of trying to solve a problem or trying to find a solution to something. So yeah, I think it was just uh, simply an interview, but I thought, well, if I really enjoyed banking, so maybe if there was a way to kind of marry both of these up, uh, then then I could do that. And so, so yeah, in, in the end, it, it worked out and ultimately found out uh, what I wanted to do when I grew up and, uh, and ended up again, being in the IT industry. And I can't imagine being in any other industry. Uh, I just absolutely love what I do and uh, enjoy getting up each morning and going to work. And I've been fortunate to be able to, to make a career out of that. And, and in my 25 years, probably about 16, 17 years ago, uh, moved in more of the healthcare space and, and started uh, taking on leadership roles. And, and I've been a CIO uh, now probably for the last, either as a uh, divisional or segment CIO or the actual CIO probably for the last 12, 13 years in different companies. It's been um, interesting that fortunate being in healthcare now and in IT, two of the most needed industries because everyone's going to get sick or old and they need healthcare. And there's not an organization on the planet that doesn't need technology to run their day-to-day operations. So I feel very blessed that I'm in two pretty solid industries for uh, job security. Yeah, that's great. So uh, I, I noticed that you also, uh, with Quilogy, you were actually the general manager. So that obviously was more broader than uh, IT. Tell, tell us about that experience. Yeah, so it was a company called Quilogy. Uh, when I started with them, they were called Solutech. And, uh, and they had grown out of St. Charles, Missouri. The, the founder was, uh, his name was Randy Schilling. And he had uh, started the company as a training business because his background was in Sybase uh, development. So if people are familiar from an IT perspective, uh, Microsoft's database platform is called Microsoft SQL Server. Well, really, that's built off of the Sybase platform because Microsoft went and acquired Sybase. And that's how they ended up building that uh, that product for them on the SQL side. And so they were a developer and, and, and trainer and, and data database designer and programmer and administrator. And so he wanted to start a consulting business. But of course, to be able to get a company up and running, you need cash and you need cash pretty quickly. And so he decided that how he would fund his company was by doing training classes. So he ended up getting a $5,000 loan from his father-in-law and he and he went out and bought 10 computers and he ended up having his first class. And the nice thing about training is you collect the money ahead of the training class. And so people would buy and pay for the training. He'd deliver the training and then he'd take the money from that training and then go and buy a few more computers. So then his classes could become bigger and bigger. And, and again, that's how he started the company with the cash flow in that way. And so it, it, it had branched out across the United States. And so when I came to work for uh, Solutech at that time, it was in 98. And, uh, and so uh, I was hired in as a senior consultant. And, and the funny thing, funny story to that is that uh, I was looking for my next IT job because at that point I had worked at uh, as a subcontractor to Sprint PCS, which was uh, a company that was forming in the Kansas City in the early, they were very early stages within Kansas City and worked there as a subcontractor. That was my first IT job. And then I went and worked at a small local insurance company in Lawrence, which I think might still be there in Lawrence, but I was their network administrator. And so I was now looking for another opportunity, another challenge. And I went to a job fair at KU. And, uh, and of course, they had all of these uh, different companies there. And I went and talked to several different companies. And I had one resume left. And I was actually headed out the door. And it was sort of like, the only thing I can think of it, it reminds me of heading out the back door of this, this venue. And this company, Solutech, had a booth right by the back door. And I thought, I have one resume left. I don't want to walk out of here and still have a resume. So I'm just going to drop it off and talk to them. And they called me back three days later and they said, well, you know, we're looking for entry level consultants and you're probably overqualified for that. But we do have another opportunity in Kansas City. Can we have the general manager in Kansas City call you? And I said, sure. And so, of course, he called me the next week. I ultimately came on as a senior consultant with Quilogy and about six months into the job, had an opportunity to um, or uh, sorry, I started as a consultant and six months in, I then was promoted to a senior consultant and then moved into a managing consultant position. And then that general manager moved on uh, to another location within the company. 
And, uh, and they felt that my experience, along with how I interacted with people, they had felt Michael might actually be a good fit to be the general manager in the consulting practice. And, uh, and I remember the year before I had done a um, performance evaluation with the general manager and, uh, and he, he made some comments that have stuck with me ever since is he had mentioned in one of his summary reviews of my performance is he said, Michael has a unique ability to um, transition from the boardroom to the data center room. Uh, and what he meant by that was that I could, I could go in and talk to various different audiences and, and talk with either executives or board directors about the challenges their organization or the opportunities their organization was facing and how technology could address that, but then be able to go into the data center and explain that same concept to technical individuals in a technology way for them to understand that. And so, you know, I, I, I mean, I was very flattered by his comments, but he ultimately then recommended for me to take over the general manager position. And, and so I was given an interim role and then eventually made the, the general manager and uh, did that for almost three years. And that organization, that company, because it was owned by that, that individual that started the company, there were three executives above the general manager. And unless one of those executives was going to die or leave the company, when you hit the general manager, you hit the ceiling, right? You weren't going to go any further than that. So then ultimately moved on. And, and, uh, and that's when I first started getting more into the, to the healthcare space and working a lot more in that healthcare space by moving to Thermo Fisher Scientific which uh, they're the largest life sciences company in the world. And they had a, a business that they had acquired that was in Kansas City. And, and then, again, I've been in and involved in, in healthcare ever since. Yeah, uh, just a couple different things about Quilogy. Uh, one, how, how you were fairly young to be the GM. How, how old were you at the time? I think I was 31 when wow. I got named. And I don't know if I ended up being the youngest GM the company had, if not, I was the second youngest. It was, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was a risk on their part, um, but it was also a huge opportunity on my part. And yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. And, uh, um, but I think again, just because I, I didn't start my career in IT, and I kind of had uh, uh, had some other life experiences. Again, working in the banking world and interacting with a lot of customers and things like that. That, uh, that I think it just positioned me well that you had someone that was fairly strong on the technology side, but could also work with the customers and the clients that they needed the general manager to do that, you know, uh, um, most technologists, they just wouldn't have that ability to interact both on the business side, as well as on the, uh, the technology side, if you're a technology consultant focused on a specific technology that you were responsible for. And uh, so, uh, so, yeah. Was it true that you, sometimes when you were leading uh, the meetings at Quilogy, you would break out into a song from like Oklahoma or My Fair Lady or something like that to just a kind of... <laughs> no, but I would use a lot of mo movie quotes. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I want to talk about on that Quilogy, um, and I, I love this, I think, you know, one of the keys, um, I think, for uh, IT leaders is the ability to talk to the executives uh, that are non-technical, which would be the majority, uh, and and make it easy f uh, for them to understand, you know, what the challenges are without getting into, you know, um, you know, IT speak. I think that's one of the bigger challenges. I mean, how did I mean? Was it just because of your personality you were able to do that, and you can you can empathize and saying, hey, these are not IT people. I need to change my language? Yeah, I, I think partially. And, and again, I know a lot of technologists that, that can seamlessly uh, do that, but it's not the norm, right? That uh, again, when, when you think about individuals that are attracted to IT, uh, these are very analytical individuals that really kind of want to get into the weeds of a of, a, of an issue or a problem and look for that solution that sometimes you can be so focused on trying to solve that problem that you forget about the other people around you. And even to an extent that when you try to explain it, because it's so second nature to a technologist, there's, there's also kind of this default that the individual I'm talking to is going to understand what I'm saying. And so they just jump right into whatever that issue is from a technology perspective. And then it's just going right over the head of the audience. 
but the the other challenge is the recipient of that information a lot of times specifically if they're an executive or a leader in a business they don't want to look like they don't understand what someone is saying so they'll just kind of go along with the conversation but the problem is is that they're completely confused about what this person is saying but they don't want to also look like I don't know what you're talking about. And it just creates this really awkward situation where that technologist is explaining something. The person receiving that information doesn't understand it. The likelihood of that leader reaching out to that same IT person the next time when there's a problem is pretty low. Right. And sometimes that's why you know CIOs struggle to get this proverbial seat at the table within leadership because they're coming into a lot of the conversations, communicating what they feel most comfortable with, which is um, something that is completely foreign to the rest of the leaders in the organization. And they can never kind of meet in the middle and have that communication, that relationship and conversation. And sometimes CIOs and, and IT technologists are their own worst enemy and trying to build that business relationship because of that. That's what helped me when I was in college going through criminology is that when you think about a, a crime that's been committed and someone now is coming in that has absolutely zero knowledge of who the parties are and what actually happened, and they need to build their case to say, okay, this is what we understand happened. This is the motive of why it happened. And, and here is the individual we're looking for. You almost have to kind of build that foundation from the ground up, which means that you are putting kind of these building blocks together to then articulate what you need to share as a law enforcement person to the legal authorities, which would be like the district attorney or something like that for them to build their case. And so I think when I transitioned from kind of that thought process and, and criminology over to IT and building that foundation, I think it really provided me a lot of abilities to kind of to build that foundation of trying to explain what the problem was or what the issue is uh, that you then are going to communicate that in terms knowing your audience. Because again, if a law enforcement person comes in and starts trying to share some information and they're doing all of this criminology speak type things, people are going to get really confused. And so I think it's just, I was fortunate to be able to be in that position to kind of understand how to articulate challenging technical issues, but to be able to communicate that with the appropriate audience for them to understand that. And that's one of the things that you're taught in criminology as well. Yeah, very interesting. I think the challenge with a lot of IT leaders as well as their teams is that they don't understand the business mm -hmm. and, and, and they get very pigeonholed into technology. So how do you go about leading a team like that and have opening their mind to getting involved in the business side? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, and perfect uh, example of that was the company preceding the company I'm with now. Uh, when, when I was with that organization, I came in um, to the company and, and IT was just not positioned well within the organization at all. Uh, there was just a lot of, of strife and uh, challenges that the rest of the organization had with IT. So there was just no relationship there. Uh, the rumor was across the entire organization that IT was the division of no, that if you, you know, wanted to request something, IT said, no, you can't do that, or no, we don't allow that, different things like that. But also just the challenge of being able to consistently deliver and provide value to the organization. And so about six months before I started with that company, it came around that they would do a work environment survey once every two years, sometimes two or three years, but they'd do this work environment survey and it would go out and rate all the divisions in comparison to each other. And again, it wasn't like a competition. It was just helping leadership to kind of understand where there were opportunities to improve things across the company. And so I was given a copy of that work environment survey because they had started it six months before I had started. Uh, but like, I think it was a month after I started, the final report had been generated by the third party company that would do the survey form. And so I got the results back and IT out of 18 divisions, IT was rated 18. They were the lowest rated division. They had horrible scores in how they were interacting with the organization. And, and you could almost walk into any meeting with anyone across the organization that IT was participating in, and you could almost cut the tension with a knife. And it was just really, really 
bad. And so I quickly discovered, because I came in with a, a plan of what we were going to do, and I quickly discovered that I need to throw everything out the window and start from scratch, that instead of us focusing on technology and providing technology services to the organization, we're going to focus as our number one priority, customer service. That we need to make sure that number one, we're building a relationship with the organization that we are providing a service to them that is going to be focused on customer service. So I wanted every single individual in my team to understand what it meant to empathize with someone when they raise a request with IT. There's a few things you need to understand. Number one, they have a problem that they don't know how to solve. So that when you when they submit that ticket or that request to you, the number one thing you will not do is you will not talk down to them. You will not um, look at, even if they've submitted this request 10 times in the last two weeks, and you've already told them how to solve this issue, do not berate them. Do not make them feel inferior. And, and again, this is not something that IT deliberately does. But if you've ever been in a conversation with someone that is highly intelligent and you start talking with them, sometimes they can get to a certain way in how they communicate that almost comes across as very arrogant or comes across as you know, I don't I don't have a lot of time for you right now, but because I'm a nice person, I'm going to make time for you. Sort of like that type of attitude. And so what would end up happening is individuals in the business would almost be fearful of submitting a ticket to IT because they didn't know how IT was going to react to that ticket. You know, were they going to feel dumb because they didn't understand how to do this? And so we focused the first six to nine months of my job. Everything was on customer service. And I told them technology is secondary. And so we went through that whole process. Two years later, the next work environment survey came around. And I kid you not that the results that came back, IT went from the lowest rated division to the highest rated division. They were number one in the company. And everything that they had increased, they increased by double digit percentages across all areas. And it was all because of how individuals that would interact with non IT people to make sure that we were building a relationship, that we were empathizing, we were compassionate. And then, of course, we'd still solve the problem. And then people really enjoyed interacting with IT. And that's what allowed us to start building strong relationships that helped us better understand the organization through these subject matter experts across the organization. And then we were able to do some incredible things at that organization in 2021, uh, we were named one of the 100 best companies to work for in IT. And that was across all industries across the United States. So, I mean, it was a massive turnaround, but it was all around the fact of how can we build relationships with the business? Because that will help us better understand what the business does and how to best serve them and support them. And I'm a huge believer. It always starts with customer service and being able to build that relationship because people love to talk about what they do. And, uh, and when we can build that relationship, we can ex exponentially increase the time it takes for us to fully understand how the business operates, what they do, and how best technology can uh, serve their needs. Well, yeah, that's a great turnaround story. I, I love that. And yeah, and it just starts at the top. So you, you know, if you're telling them customer services first, and that through your direct reports down to their, you know, their teams, that, that's uh, phenomenal. So I, I had my first not-for-profit experience. I, I spent a brief time at United Way of Greater Kansas City. And I, I definitely noticed some cultural changes, uh, cultural differences, I should say, in regards to commercial companies, for-profit, to not-for-profit. You worked at American Academy for Family uh, physicians, they're not for profit. What, what kind of differences did you notice, you know, based on, you know, your past experience with Thermal Fisher Scientific and Quilogy? The biggest is uh, generally, and I think I would, I'd probably be safe to say 99% of the time when you're in a nonprofit organization, what the focus is, is the mission of that nonprofit, right? Whereas when you're in a for-profit, whether that's private profit or publicly traded company, Generally, the focus is if you're publicly traded on the shareholders, right? Because you want to make sure that you're returning value and, and, and really driving that ROI. 
Um, whereas in private profit, of course, it's about being profitable and making sure that we are on the right side from a financial perspective. But in nonprofits, it's more focused on that mission. So, so there is a big cultural shift of going from a company that would say, again, if you're publicly traded, the third month of every quarter is like the holy grail, right? We've got to make sure that we're hitting our best numbers because if if we are publicly traded, we want to make sure Wall Street's happy with us, the investors are happy with us. So it's all about sell, sell, sell. Let's generate as much revenue as we possibly can. And then, of course, the same thing in a private profit. They don't have that, that challenge from a quarterly perspective, but making sure that we're in the black as much as we can. But in a nonprofit, it's more of everything you make from a profitable perspective is just cyclical. It goes right back into the company uh, and they're reinvesting that back into the organization. So everything 24 by 7 is based upon the mission. And that is a huge cultural shift if an, organi- if an individual has never worked in a nonprofit because how you make decisions is not necessarily always based upon financial metrics. It's based upon the mission of what you're doing. So with AFP, their mission was to focus and support on family physicians. And can we make sure that our country has access to affordable health care and, uh, and being able to provide those values? So I absolutely, I really, truly, it was, I loved working at the AFP with their mission that uh, I even look back um, being with that organization and compare that to other companies. I think the value side of it is, is something that I was incredibly proud of to be part of because it's hard to argue with the fact that you want every single citizen in the United States or every single person in the United States to, uh, to have access to quality health care. And, and if you're playing a part in being able to support family physicians and primary care and providing that value, I mean, you got to be a pretty bad person if you don't think that's a good thing. What was it like working there uh, when the pandemic hit? What was the kind of crazy stuff that happened, uh, you know, since you're supporting, you know, the, the yeah. family physicians of the U.S. Yeah. during that time? I mean, it wouldn't have been much different than any other company. I think the the advantage is is when I came in, which I started with uh, AFP in 2015, and then I, I took the opportunity that I'm at now in 2022. And so, of course, 2020 hit right there toward the, the latter part of my time with AFP. One benefit was because um, I had come into the organization and laid out a uh, three to five year strategic plan of what the organization needed to focus on, from a, from a technology perspective, we were very well positioned to make the transition from 100% in office to 100% remote. A lot of companies did not have that luxury. That COVID really threw a lot of companies for a loop because most organizations and their technology was designed with having majority of your population being inside the building or inside the network perimeter uh, for that uh, for that particular employee. And now you're expanding your network perimeter to now go into people's homes. I mean, there's everything from cybersecurity to, to everything that you need to consider uh, that now your people are accessing the network from outside of that environment via VPN and things like that. So part of the strategy was creating a more hybrid cloud computing environment coupled with still the on-premise software that was needed. And so we gave all the employees, even prior to COVID, uh, majority of the employees had laptop computers uh, because it just made more sense for the culture because as they moved around within the building uh, for meetings and things like that, it was just easier for them to carry a laptop than, than being uh, locked to their, to their desk with a desktop. And so from an equipment perspective, we were fully ready uh, to make that transition. And so when March of 2020 came around, the leadership said, okay, we want to start testing out some things because we hear rumors across the, uh, the, the country and from CDC that this virus seems to be exponentially increasing and we might be asked to work from home a couple of days a week or something like that. That was the original thought. And so we told the CEO, I said, well, everything's in place for us to do this. And we were going to run a test cycle just to see how that would work over the next two weeks. Well, as we all know, COVID was rapidly evolving by the hour. And that we had this conversation on a Wednesday. The next Monday morning, the CEO said, 
tomorrow morning, we're starting 100% remote. We never got to do our test cycle or anything, but we told the CEO, we're confident everything's going to work because we have all of our infrastructure, everything's in place. And sure enough, Tuesday morning came, no one missed a beat. And we discovered three months into COVID that divisions were actually more productive working from home than they were working in the office. And the reason why is because you would have on a daily basis, people that would go to the break room and they'd meet some of their friends and they would talk and have conversations or people would stop in the hall and talk to each other. And so you'd quickly realize that over a period of day, you know, of an eight hour work day, most employers were probably working five and a half to six hours a day because otherwise all the other time was socializing with other individuals, which is great. I mean, that's that's wonderful that that's happening. But when people started working remotely, um, they didn't have that those distractions. Even though those were positive distractions, they didn't have it. And so we discovered that they were more productive. And one of the divisions that published uh, the medical journals for the academy, they actually completed one of their publications uh, like either three days or a week early. And they had never done that in the history of their publication, which I think they had been publishing this medical journal for 20 plus years. And it's the first time they actually came in that early on their production date because everyone was just focused on work at home and, uh, and were very productive. And since then, I think they moved to more of a hybrid schedule where uh, a few days a week they're in their office, but the other two days they work from home and, and that'll probably be a permanent schedule uh, for them. But yeah, that was where I think COVID for, for AFP, they were very well positioned, ready for that transition. Um, and they can continue to focus on what was most important because our family physicians were right on the front, front lines of dealing with patients that were having some very adverse effects to COVID and were being hospitalized and potentially going on ventilators. And unfortunately, they, many people ended up dying um, because of COVID. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I can't even imagine. I mean, you were like every, every other CIO, you had to deal with COVID from a technology and a, a workforce uh, productivity, but then supporting, you know, the, how many, you know, ha, I don't know how many family practitioners there are out there, but uh, the, there's gotta be a, you know, a, a fair amount um, supporting them in this uh, pandemic time. So you, at AFP, did phenomenal things, great turnaround, uh, award-winning, you know, IT, and then you leave to go to a Innova Prep, a, a really a startup as their CIO. What what uh, what drove your decision to do that, Michael? I guess the best way to answer that: while I was with AFP, we were coming toward the latter part of what I had kind of led as as well what I did lead as part of the overall IT strategy. And so I was looking for the next challenge because I, again, my personality is, is I love to go in organizations that are either having a challenge that they, for whatever reason, have hit the ceiling of growth or the ceiling of being able to drive innovation and to really go into those organizations and help them kind of, in some ways, maybe do a turnaround or just help them propel to go to the next level. Or you may be going into an organization that really has a lot of challenges in utilizing technology and, and really kind of creating a turnaround situation and, and that. And so as I was evaluating AFP post this strategic plan that we had executed, I realized it's going to become very much how to maintain that environment. That's not something I really enjoy and, and strive for. I really like to come in and, and uh, either, again, help that organization get to the next level or, or do a turnaround. And so I had started to kind of dabble and look into um, researching how I might be able to get involved with the venture capital private equity industry. And I discovered very quickly that that industry is incredibly insulated, that unless the investors know you personally, the likelihood that you're going to be able to break into that industry is very, very low. And it makes sense. I mean, from a practical perspective, you have these individuals that are investing large sums of money into companies, and they want to make sure that the people that they select, they trust, and that they feel like that they have a, a track record of success. And, uh, and so if an investor doesn't know who you are, they're probably not going to necessarily peg you as someone that they want to bring into their company to be one of the leaders that they've invested in. 
And, uh, and so, um, so as I was kind of going through that, I could not find a way in and it ended up having an individual that I actually report to now at Nova Prep. I had worked with her and supported her in one of the business units that I was responsible for at Thermal Fisher Scientific. She had been brought on as an integrator for this company to help them grow that business because the two founders were scientists and they were, I mean, incredibly intelligent, talented scientists, but that didn't equate to them being great business people. And so uh, the investors then wanted to bring an outside individual that in the private equity world, that's called an integrator to come in and, and really kind of establish the company and, and set them up for growth. And so about six months into her position as a contractor, they then hired her on to be the president and chief operating officer of the company. Well, she was looking for a CIO to come in and help lay out the, the technology strategy and the foundation for the organization to prepare for this growth. And uh, she reached out to me because I had worked with her at Thermal Fisher. And so that's how I ended up getting into, into that space. But uh, Anova Prep is a microbiology startup company, and uh, they have some incredible technology of what they do in the sample prep industry that, I mean, very, very exciting future. And I think they uh, can become a, a huge success because there's so much demand for automation in that industry that it has historically been a very manual arduous processing step because of, of that particular industry. And, and we have some opportunities to drive a lot of automation in that process to, to really uh, not only improve the accuracy, but the speed of analyzing samples. It's a huge opportunity. And uh, so I've, I've had a great time. I've been with them a little over a year and absolutely have, a, have loved the challenge. Of course, when you go into a startup company, you wear many hats because you're having to do multiple different things at the same time. And, and that's, what, again, goes back to the side of what I really like to be challenged with in an organization. I love startups. You know, I was in Sprint in the early days and Sprint PCS and uh, Aritana Therapeutics. Uh, what was your biggest surprise, you know, working for your first startup, really? I don't know if it would be a surprise as much as it was just an adjustment is that when you go into a more established company, there is an established budget uh, on an annual basis. There's a, a, an established way of how to prioritize on certain projects and things like that, because again, it goes back to that established budget that you kind of know ahead of time, this is what I can spend right? Or this is where there's opportunities where I might be able to ask for additional money based upon how that organization is doing financially as you progress through their fiscal year. In a startup company, there could be a lot of peaks and valleys where, you know, as they're growing the business, you may have a period of time that now they've increased their revenue. So now you need to act quick, right? So you may have queued something up and then it's like, I know we were planning on doing this like five, six months from now, but we need to start doing this next week. Right. And, and so a lot of flexibility from that perspective, but you also hit a period of valleys where you're really ready to move forward with something. But then you have to hit the pause button because there's not, you know, the revenue is not there to be able to drive that initiative forward. And you're not going to keep going back to the well of the investors and say, hey, can you give us some more money and, and keep doing that over and over again? So it's just a, it's, a, it's a game of a lot of patience. Um, so you have to be willing to know that uh, there's going to be some really exciting, fast-paced days because as the company's growing and more revenue's coming in, it's a lot of fun. But there's also some days that are very doldrum because as we need to kind of lock down the hatches and really manage our spend, you need to be patient and hold on and not get overly frustrated. So, so that would probably be the biggest adjustment that I had to make going from uh, publicly traded companies where it seemed like it was unlimited uh, funding was available to you uh, to then going into uh, private profit or nonprofit, but they're established companies where they have, you know, a pretty strong financial uh, healthiness to them to a startup where every single day could be completely different based upon how the market's reacting to the products that that company is selling. Yeah, no, I love that. Yeah, that's a, a great experience and a great explanation of uh, one of the differences in the startup. So thank you for that. So you're also doing a little bit of your own consulting in the fractional, I'll call it CIO space. So explain the fractional model. I think it's gaining a lot of traction right now in the consulting world with probably the C fractional CFO being uh, kind of the most mature. But tell us a little bit about that. 
Yeah, and it's very similar to the other industries that have utilized fractional. So you have fractional chief marketing officer, chief financial officer. So a fractional CIO is is generally coming into an organization that may be in, in an interim period where they need to uh, transitioning out from one CIO to the next, but they don't necessarily need a full-time CIO. So that could be one business scenario. The other one is it's a small to medium-sized company and they just don't have the financial means to hire a full-time CIO, but they, they recognize that they need that technology leadership and that strategic direction of how best to utilize technology to help that organization grow or manage their costs through the use of automation and, and things like that. So yeah, I started uh, my own company a little over a year ago. The company is called P4S. Uh, which is just an acronym for Partner for Success. Um, I have a website out there at uh, yourp4s.com. Uh, and uh, yeah, I provide not only fractional CIO services, but also uh, uh, technology advisory services, um, helping, again, small to mid-sized companies be able to build out their IT strategy and technology roadmap and uh, and really just providing that after 25 plus years of experience uh, in various different industries and, and company sizes, I, I feel that I have an opportunity to give back and uh, and be able to provide value to organizations that just may not be positioned to, to afford a full-time CIO. Yeah, you'd be a phenomenal addition to any small to mid-sized company based on your expertise. That's wonderful. So I know a lot of the audience is thinking about this question, so I'm going to ask it. So you have chief information officer, CIO, and then you have chief technology officer, mm -hmm. CTO. So, uh, you know, in layman's terms, what is the difference Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. And that is the million dollar question. Because even within the IT industry, sometimes there is this conflict that exists between a CIO and a CTO. Um, so the best way to explain this would be a chief technology officer is really focused on the systems and the applications and the um, just, just the technology itself of how an organization is going to execute on that technology. So generally a, a CTO is going to be leading the organization in, um, in driving innovation forward, focused 100% of their time on just the technology. So if we're going to be developing applications, what is the programming language that we're going to utilize as an organization, which means what is the talent that we need to hire because these developers are, are well-versed in this particular programming language. Or if we're going to be managing data analytics, what is the database platform that we're going to invest in? Is it going to be a Microsoft SQL Server? Is it going to be Oracle? Is it going to be some other type of platform? Uh, so everything 100% is based upon the technology side of the organization. A CIO is more of an executive that's driving the strategy related to how technology will be utilized within the organization. And that could be everything from how we interact with the external customers, how we interact with the vendors, the technology that we're using, but it's more from a business strategic perspective of how technology can be used. Um, a lot of companies, the CIO and the CTO are one and the same. In some companies, there's two different ones and, and that can, it works, but a company really needs to work hard to make that work because sometimes there are different opinions between the CIO and the CTO. And, and if they're reporting to two different individuals within the organization, that can create a lot of internal strife and internal politics that is not only costing the organization money, but it's wasting time in being able to drive things forward. And so I'm of the belief, not every one of my peers agrees with this. I'm of the belief that um, the CTO would generally best be suited to report into the CIO and the CIO then works with uh, the executive leadership just because of that business relationship and that strategy side of that. But uh, not all my peers in our agreement, uh, some of them think it's the other way. The CIO should report to the CTO and some even think, well, no, the CIO and the CTO both need to report into the CEO of the company. Um, you know, again, it's up to that organization what works best for them. But at the end of the day, you need to make sure that um, whatever your structure is, 
that there is alignment across the board, because if not, you're really spending a lot of equity of people's time and, and, and internal capital on trying to move the organization forward. And there's nothing more frustrating than having infighting happening that's preventing that from happening. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of, uh, you know, the VP of marketing and the VP of sales, uh, mm-hmm, when, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of uh, maybe a territorial battle and, you know, who's, exactly. who's more powerful and things like that. But that is a great explanation. Thank you. So I think we're in an interesting time with technology, chat, GPT, AI, things like that. But what do you think, uh, Michael, is the biggest opportunity for CIOs today? I think the biggest opportunity is because there's so much reliance organizations have on technology. And it's interesting because I've read this in a number of articles, not only in the Wall Street Journal, but um, in, in several different publications, that the probability of the next generation CEOs being individuals that came from the ranks of a CIO is exponentially higher than in any other function within a company. So this is a huge opportunity for CIOs that when you think about what's the market going to look like in the next 15 to 25 years, it may not be very surprising for us if we were were to go into the future of 15, 25 years and see a lot of companies that the CEO had some type of technology background. And, And the reason why is because there's so much dependency that exists there on the technology. Now, people could argue and say, yeah, but that's the same thing for sales and finance and marketing. But I think the only thing that's different about that is that as we look at how we interact with products as consumers, Uh, Or if we look at how we interact with consumers from the products that we deliver, think about how much reliance, how we access products that we purchase, how much of a technology aspect comes into that play, it positions CIOs really well. But here's the challenge for CIOs. Are they ready to be able to take on that opportunity? I, I have a lot of peers that are CIOs that if they were asked to be the CEO tomorrow, they would do incredibly well and be very successful. But there's also some that they just can't seem to get out of their lane in technology to really have thought-provoking conversations with the board of directors or with the leadership of that company to be in a position where the board would feel comfortable with them taking over the reins as a CEO. So I think what CIOs really need to focus on in the next foreseeable future leading up to that potential 15 to 25 years is how can they understand everything from how a PL works to understanding how marketing and sales and finance and operations and production and different things like that of those functions, how they all interact to, to drive value for a company and really become strong subject matter experts into those particular areas so that they can be positioned well to become the next generation chief operating officers or CEOs to to run the company and and drive an organization forward with the board. That is the biggest opportunity CIOs have. Yeah, that's a great perspective. Yeah, I think, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, Usually your CFO became the CEO. And I think in the maybe starting in the mid 90s to today, it, it became more of the CMOs and chief revenue, chief uh, sales officers had that op- has that opportunity. So it's a very interesting perspective. Uh, Michael, there's two groups I'd like to impart great leaders like yourself insight. And I think with your how you uh went and navigated your college experience. This is going to really help the first group. So, uh, you know, we're, we're coming up here next month. People are going to be graduating from college, starting their professional career. What career advice would you have for them? Uh, the biggest one is be open to any and all opportunities because you don't know when you first graduate college and go into the workforce, the likelihood that what you first did in your first job will potentially not be related in one shape or form to what, if you fast forward to any of your career, what you would be doing at that time. So keep an open mind that uh, when an opportunity comes before you, unless it's something you would absolutely hate doing, take a chance. And uh, if you think that would be something that you would like to do, then do it because you never know where that path may take you and the doors that it will open 
that uh, you may look back and say that was the absolute best decision I ever made was to take that opportunity. So I think really look at, at that. So, yeah, that would be more for the college graduates. You said there was another group. Yeah, another group I'd like to uh, help is so, you you know, you start your job out of college. Usually, usually you're an individual contributor, but now you get your first management role, your first leadership role. You have people reporting to you. What advice would you have them to build their career as a leader? Yeah, no, that's that's a great question as well. You know, some of the best advice that I ever had uh, from a mentor early in my career was that when you make the transition as an individual contributor to now potentially managing the team that you are an individual contributor to, the number one thing you got to remember is you are not their friend. You are their leader. And so um, when you were an individual contributor, you had an opportunity where you could go into the break room and maybe talk smack about the leadership and how, you know, things are not working. You know, you kind of feel like you're building that camaraderie because you're all you're all fighting this fight, you know, to uh, to make sure that the world's a better place. When you become that manager and that leader, in some cases, whether you mean this to happen or not, Sometimes you now suddenly have crossed this line that your previous colleagues now see that you're on the dark side, right? And so you need to make sure that as a leader, when you're managing those people, this, this is not your friend, right? This is, a, this is a, uh, an, an employer-employee type relationship. That doesn't mean that you can't be respectful. That doesn't mean that you can't still have a relationship with that person, but it's a completely different relationship. So for me personally, and I'm not saying this is for all managers, when I moved into leadership, I made sure that I was very cognizant of how I treated all my direct reports, that there were no favorites, right? That there was no one that was being positioned, that they were my my best employee, my best friend type thing, because you've got to create that division between a manager and an employer in, in a respectful way, because that's going to build trust and that's going to build uh, just a better working relationship amongst all the people that are reporting to that individual. And uh, and I, I personally, again, have never invited any of my direct reports over to my house uh, to, to have that type of personal relationship, because I always wanted to kind of keep that there was some type of distance that was a mutually respected difference. Uh, and that's probably one of the biggest challenges that a brand new manager is going into uh, to a, a new opportunity managing for the first time is they want everyone to like them and they want everyone to be their friend. Um, but it's never going to happen. Right. You're never going to have 100 percent of the team that reports to you to be happy with you 100 percent of the time. And you need to deal with that and you need to be OK with that. Yes, thank you for that, Michael. You've been a phenomenal guest. Uh, I love the IT perspective uh, on the business. You, like I said, you're the first uh, CIO uh, to be a guest on the corporate couch. So thank you for your insight and time, Michael. All right. Well, thank you for inviting me. Really enjoyed it. Well, I loved having Michael on the podcast, uh, being the first CIO we've had. And Joe, you and I have had a long career in and around uh, IT. And just, I love the turnaround at AFP uh, when he took over as CIO. You know, they were ranked last out of 19 departments. And then he said, I don't care about the application development and, and projects you need to focus the number one priority is on customer service. Yeah, isn't that great? Uh, which I thought, you know, again, you know, I've been like the smartest IT person in sales and marketing, which is a low bar, but, you know, I've partnered with IT my whole career. As you know, I started my career as an application developer, but just, you know, it always just boggled my mind that, you know, some they wanted to not do things, so... So you're you're in the hands-on technology oh, world yeah. more than I do. What was your take from the Yeah, from uh, virtually my entire professional career has been either in IT or working around IT and uh I you're see You're a that shadow IT guy. I'm a shadow IT guy right now, but don't tell our IT department that. But what I've always done in IT when I'm either in IT or working on an IT-ish like project and I'm having to talk to a user 
He was talking about that they had the reputation of being the division of no. That is, the first thing that would always come out of their mouth if they were ever asked to do anything, the answer would be no. And I always have the philosophy of the first thing that comes out of my mouth that I'll always say is yes. The only thing is it might be yes, but. So can you do thus and so? Yes, we can do that, but it's going to cost this much. Or yes, but it's going to have these consequences. Or yes, but whatever else. And there doesn't even have to be a but all the time, but most of the time there will be. The, the, the idea is lead with the yes. Start out by saying that your emphasis is going to be on customer service first. And so my first answer is going to be yes, we can do that. Now here are the consequences thereof. I really wish more IT departments would have a philosophy similar to that rather than just coming right out of the gate and saying, no, that's not possible. Or what's even worse is, no, we refuse to do that. Right. Instead of being the business partner, they're the division of no. Yeah. You know, and I think the majority of companies with obviously IT organizations, they are business partners. Unless you are, you know, your IT in Google or Facebook where you're driving company revenue and uh -huh. profit, I mean, you're a partner. Um, you just you, like you certainly partner. should be. And yeah. a lot of IT departments think that their responsibility is actually to protect the IT investment or assets, to protect the IT assets. So we don't want you overloading our computer, for instance. Uh, we don't want you doing thus and so with our data, meaning ITs. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's... Or we're taking that's... too much storage up. I mean, yeah, that was a valid point in maybe the early 90s. But like if Jeff Bezos, when he was running Amazon, said, we don't throw any data away, I'm pretty sure any other company oh, has man. less data than Amazon. I don't know how many times I have threatened to literally drive down the street to Best Buy and pick up a two terabyte disk drive or thumb, yeah, thumb drive, drive and then put it in my pocket and plug it into my laptop and use all the space that I think I need. It's just amazing. Well, now that we have the, our first CIO, does that lead you into any uh, leadership advice for our listeners, Joe? Yes, uh, we are staying with the same technology theme that we uh, have used throughout this entire episode. And uh, today we are turning to that great philosopher named Mordak, the preventer of information services, who one time said, security is more important than usability. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Corporate Couch. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love for you to take two minutes out of your day to rate us five stars and write a review. Please join me next week to learn from another great leader sharing their professional journey and insights.